That last song that we sang, we, need, we really need to ask ourselves whether or not we believe that. Can we sing that even when our hearts are breaking and tears are falling down our face uh, because of something horrible that's happened in our lives? Can we still say all is well with my soul? Because we remember that truth in Romans 8, 28, that the Lord causes all things to work together for good to them that love him and are called according to his purpose. Not only the easy things or the good things, but also the bad, painful things. He causes all of that to work together for our good. Let's pray. Lord, we, we do pray for ourselves that we would truly believe um, the words that we have sung this morning, um, that because you are sovereign and you are in control, there is nothing that occurs in our lives that is outside of your control or out of your hands. Lord, everything that comes into our lives has first passed through your hands. And Lord, you have determined, if we know your son, that what is going on in our lives, no matter how painful it may be, is working for our good to conform us to the image of your son. Lord, help us to truly believe that. And when we encounter trials, Lord, help us to be able to sing that because we we, we do earnestly believe that you're in control and that you have a good plan, even behind bad things that may be happening. Lord, help us to trust you in all of that. And we pray that as we come to your word, your spirit would teach us, that he would do a mighty work in our hearts so that we would not leave this building the same people as we were when we came in, but that we would be molded into Christ's likeness, Lord. And any here who don't know your son, and who are on their way to hell because they are still enslaved to their sin, Lord, may they not leave this morning the same way they came in. May they instead leave coming to have known Jesus as Lord and Savior, having been freed from their sin and from the coming wrath of God. Help them, even through your word this morning, to put their faith and trust in Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen. We're back in 1 Corinthians this morning, and Lord willing, we'll be finishing chapter 10. We'll be looking at verses 23 of chapter 10 all the way through chapter 11, verse 1. So if you could turn there, and as you turn there, I'll read it for us. Paul writes in verse 23 of chapter 10, All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but that of the other person. Eat anything that is sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's, as well as its fullness. If one of the unbelievers invites you and you want to go, eat anything that is set before you without asking questions for conscience sake. But if anyone says to you, this meat is consecrated to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you, and for conscience' sake. I do not mean your own conscience, but the other person's. For why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? If I partake with gratefulness, why am I slandered concerning that for which I give thanks? Whether then you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, 
but the profit of the many, so that they may be saved. Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. One of the most common struggles that we have as believers is knowing what we are free in Christ to do and what we are not free in Christ to do. It's a common question that we ask ourselves, does God permit me to do this? Does God permit me to do this? If we take our commitment to God seriously, that's probably a question we find ourselves asking repeatedly. And hopefully we ask it because we desire to honor God with our lives. And we don't want to do anything that would be offensive to him or dishonoring to him. Hopefully we don't ask that question instead out of a desire to see what we can get away with. How far can I press this envelope? And that question, does God permit me to do this? That can be a challenging question for us to answer. Because sometimes the circumstances out of which that question arises can be quite confusing. We don't know which way is up and which way is down. And sometimes the stakes can be quite high with relationships or career on the line. How can we come to a solid answer to this common question, does God permit me to do this? Well, in our passage this morning, Paul gives us a lot of help in answering this question because he shows us in this passage where the boundary markers around our freedom in Christ are located. And if we know where these boundary markers around our freedom in Christ are located, then we can face this troubling question with more clear-headedness than hopefully we've been able to in the past. So as we go through this passage, we are going to see that these boundary markers that are around our Christian freedom, they're not random because God is the one who has set them where they're set. These boundary lines have been placed where they are because they're in keeping with love for God and love for neighbor. Aren't those the two greatest commandments? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said that all the law and the prophets hangs on those two commandments. And so it's not a surprise to see that our freedom in Christ is bounded by markers that are in keeping with those commandments. In this passage, we're going to see three boundary markers that the love for God and neighbor sets around the freedom we have in Christ. Three boundary markers. And these markers will protect us from wandering off of that land of freedom back into slavery to sin and self. So let's pay close attention to where these boundary markers are. The first boundary marker that we see surrounding our freedom in Christ is in verses 23 through 24. And we are commanded in these verses to seek another's profit. That's the first boundary line. Seek another's profit. That's what's supposed to characterize our lives as believers, seeking the profit of another rather than myself. Look at verse 23. Paul says, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. This is almost a repeat of what Paul said back in chapter 6 and in verse 12. Let me read that verse for you. 
chapter 6, verse 12, Paul said in the context of addressing the sexual immorality that was creeping into the church, he said, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. There, Paul was addressing the way that the Corinthians were twisting the principle of Christian freedom into a pretzel such that it included living in sexual immorality. And so Paul had to educate them and say, no, no, you, Christian freedom does not involve that. And here in chapters 8 through 10 that we've been looking at these several weeks, we have seen how the Corinthians have taken that same principle, all things are lawful for me, and they have twisted that principle to also include their eating of sacrificial meals in pagan temples. And so, as he did in chapter 6, here in chapter 10, Paul is needing to put biblical boundaries around that principle of Christian freedom. Though we are free in Christ, free from the condemnation of the law, free from needing to obey the law in order to earn our own righteousness before God, that freedom is not a license to live any way we please. Being free in Christ doesn't mean I have no law to live by. Remember what Paul said back in chapter 9, verse 21. Though he acts as one who is not under the law of God, as he was associating with Gentiles, yet he still understood that he was yet under the law of Christ because he was following Christ. He wasn't a kind of obedience to the law by which he was trying to earn his own righteousness with God. Rather, it was the kind of obedience that comes from having been saved by the grace of God through faith in God. As Christians, we still have a standard to live by, and Christ is that standard. We're not permitted by God to live in a way that brings harm rather than profit to others. We're not permitted by God to live in a way that tears other people down rather than builds them up in the Lord Jesus. And as we've seen in these last few chapters, for the Corinthians to dine in idol temples, that was going to bring spiritual harm, not only to them personally, but also to any believer with a weak conscience who was watching them do that. They would confuse them and encourage them to go back to the life of idolatry that they were saved out of. Not only that, but these believers dining in idol temples would send a confusing message to unbelievers who were looking at these Christians. So Paul has to remind them, listen, not all things are profitable. Not all things build others up. Paul here is ending this three-chapter discussion that we've been following. He's ending it in the same way that he started it. Look back in chapter 8. And verse 1, the second half of that verse, what did Paul say there? What did he kick off this discussion with? He said, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. He's reminding them that true freedom in Christ means freedom to love others. It means to be free to be concerned with the good of others rather than being obsessed with your own good. We have been set free from the slavery of sin and selfishness. Think about your own lives before you came to know Christ. You were consumed with concern for who? 
yourself. And now that Christ has saved you, you have been unshackled from that obsession with self that you can look away from yourself and look at Christ and look at others and see how we can serve them, how we can lead them to Christ, help them to grow in Christ. Back in chapter 10, verse 24, Paul says, Let no one seek his own good or his own profit, but that of the other person. That's the Christian life in a nutshell. The Christian life is loving God with everything in you and showing that love for God by loving others as yourself. That's the Christian life. And the Corinthians were getting that backwards. I want you to turn with me for a moment to Galatians chapter 5 because he says something here to the Galatians And though the Galatians had the opposite problem of the Corinthians, it was still a truth that they needed to hear. Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 through 15. Before I read that, Paul spent the first five chapters of the book of Galatians calling these believers back to the true gospel, calling them to not fall into the legalism of trying to earn their right standing with God by doing good works. So he spends five chapters telling them, hey, you cannot earn your salvation. Salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. But then look at what he says in verses 13 to 15. Because here, he's, after spending those five chapters telling them one thing, he needs to guard them against swinging the pendulum way over to the other side. He says in verse 13, For you were called to freedom, brothers. That's what he spent five chapters drilling down That point, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. In this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware that you are not consumed by one another. That's a warning that the Corinthians have been needing to hear. Because they're on the opposite side of the spectrum. They are using already their freedom in Christ as an opportunity for the flesh. And back in chapter 1, we saw that they are consuming one another with backbiting. They're quarreling. They are already on that other side of the spectrum. And Paul's needing to remind them that they were set free in Christ, not so that they could continue serving themselves, serving their flesh, but so that they could love and serve God by loving and serving another. So these two verses, 23 and 24 of 1 Corinthians 10, help us to see where our Christian freedom ends. If there is something contrary to what profits or builds up others, then I am not free in Christ to do that thing. So that's the first boundary marker. Seek another's profit. Beyond that, or short of that, we dare not go. Seek another's profit. What's the second boundary marker? Well, we find this in verses 25 through 30, and it's this, serve another's conscience. Or you could say, stand watch over another's conscience. Don't live in a way that disregards the conscience of others. Just as Paul needed to guard against having the Galatians swing the pendulum from the unbelief of denying freedom in Christ, 
to the other kind of unbelief, that of perverting their freedom in Christ, so Paul needs to guard against the same swing of the pendulum, but in the opposite direction with the Corinthians. What were the Corinthians doing? They were disregarding God's word by twisting their freedom to allow for sinful and unloving behavior. Paul has strongly rebuked them, and he's taught them otherwise. But now, after having told them so strongly not to abuse their freedom, he needs to guard against them swinging too far on the other side, thinking that they don't have any freedom in Christ. So he gives them some potential real-life situations to think through, to think through how does freedom in Christ and love for neighbor fit together. Look at verse 25. Paul writes, Eat anything that is sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience' sake, for the earth is the Lord's as well as its fullness. So he's telling them what they're free in Christ to do. He's saying, don't hesitate to buy whatever is sold in the meat market. Now, why would that be an issue? That seems like a no-brainer, of course. I can go to the grocery store. I'm free to do that. What's the issue here? Well, the issue is that the meat that was being sacrificed to idols and served in temples, that same meat was also being sold in the marketplace. And based on what Paul argued, what what we looked at last week in verses 14 to 22, that they must not eat this meat in the temple of pagan deities, you can see how the Corinthians might misunderstand Paul to also mean that they dare not eat that same kind of meat being sold in the marketplace. But Paul here to clear that up is saying, no, no, you don't need to worry about that. Just buy it and eat it. You don't need to concern yourself with where it came from. Now, what's the deal here? Why was it wrong for the Corinthians to eat meat from an animal that was sacrificed to an idol in a pagan temple? Why was that wrong? But it is okay to eat the very same kind of meat that was previously sacrificed to a pagan idol Why is it now that it's out in the marketplace, why is it now okay to eat that? Well, the issue is that in one setting, worship is involved. And in the other setting, worship is not involved. Meat was not the issue. Worship was the issue. Worship was the issue. It's the same with the Lord's Supper. If we celebrate the Lord's Supper here on a Sunday morning and we have bread and juice that's left over, anybody who wants can just take it home. But we don't track you down and give you a list of instructions to take home with you and say, now, before you eat this tomorrow morning, examine yourself, make sure you're remembering what this represents. We don't tell you to do that. Why not? Because it's not in the context of corporate worship anymore. Worship's the issue, not the food. Worship. Food is morally neutral. It doesn't do anybody harm to eat or not eat. Worship is not morally neutral. There's true worship and there's false worship. So Paul says, because this food is sold in the marketplace outside the context of worship, you're free to eat it. And he backs up what he says with Scripture. He quotes Psalm 24, verse 1, in verse 26 here. For the earth is the Lord's 
as well as its fullness. Regardless of whether or not the meat had been sacrificed to an idol, that food was created by who? God. And God had given believers permission to eat all food. Jesus pronounced all food clean. God still owned all that meat that was being sold in the marketplace. And therefore, the Corinthians still had the freedom to eat that food. Just to expand on this a little bit, let's go to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4 in the first five verses. In this passage, Paul is warning against false teachers who will seek to burden believers with restrictions on their freedom that God has not placed upon them. 1 Timothy 4, verse 1. But the Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by the hypocrisy of liars who have been seared in their own conscience. And what do these people teach? Who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God created to be shared in with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything God For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. So nothing in God's creation is evil in and of itself. Because after God created everything, what did he pronounce about what he made? It was what? Very good. Very good. And as long as we are using God's creation in the way he intended for us to use it, we're free to use it. There's nothing prohibiting us from using it. And it was the same with this food in the meat market. It wasn't being used at that point to worship a false god. They could use it the way God intended, to be eaten and enjoyed. Back in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul gives us a second scenario to think through in verse 27. He says, if one of the unbelievers invites you and you want to go, eat anything that is set before you without asking questions for conscience sake. The same principle we saw at work in verses 25 to 26 applies here. If an unbeliever invites you to his house to have dinner with him, if you want, just go and eat whatever he puts in front of you without doing a background check on where that food came from. It's not in the context of worship anymore. You are free to go and eat it with with that unbeliever. We go too far when we think that God is calling us as believers to cut off all contact with unbelievers. That That is a twisting of the word of God. Remember what Paul said back in chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. He had written a letter to these believers saying, don't associate with the sexually immoral. And they took him to mean to not associate even with unbelievers who are sexually immoral. But Paul really meant, I meant don't associate with such people who are professing to be believers in the church. Look at what he said in chapter 5, verse 9. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. I did not at all mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the greedy and swindlers or with idolaters. 
for then you would have to go out of the world. We're not to become monks and set up a monastery on some forsaken island and never see another soul for as long as we live. That's not what Paul was getting at in chapter 10, verses 14 to 22. When he was prohibiting these believers from dining in idle temples, he was not making the case that we should shun all unbelievers in our lives. He was saying that we are not to join them in their false worship. That's what he was saying. An unbelieving Muslim, for instance, inviting you over for dinner, that's perfectly fine to go have dinner with him. But that's not the same thing as that unbelieving Muslim inviting you to join him in worship of Allah in a mosque. That's a totally different thing. We're not to join in with that because Allah is not the one true God. They're different things. Going to a movie with your unbelieving friend who practices the sin of homosexuality is fine. It's fine to go to a movie with your friend. But that's not the same thing as attending that friend's wedding and throwing rice at her and her new quote-unquote wife. That's something different. Because that's participating in false worship. At that point, you're celebrating sin. Do you see the difference between those things? There is a difference there. And it takes wisdom to discern that difference oftentimes. So Paul says to these Corinthians that they're free to go have a meal with that unbeliever and that they don't need to run a background check on the food that gets placed in front of them. However, when we come to verses 28 through 29a, Paul helps us to see that there are cases when our freedom in Christ needs to be curtailed out of love for our neighbor. Look at what he says in verse 28. He says, But if anyone says to you, This is meat consecrated to idols or consecrated to a deity, do not eat it. Why? For the sake of the one who informed you and for conscience' sake. I do not mean your own conscience, but the other person's. Paul instructs the Corinthians not to eat the meat placed in front of them if someone informs them that it has been sacrificed to a pagan god. And the reason that they are not to eat it is out of love for the other person. That believer should not eat what's put in front of them out of respect for the other person's conscience. Paul doesn't want the believer to become a source of stumbling to the person who informed him with concern about where this meat came from. Now, Paul doesn't tell us who this informant is in this hypothetical situation. He seems to leave it open to being either a believer, maybe a believer with a weak conscience, like what he was talking about in chapter 8, or an unbeliever. In either case, we need to ask, why would love for neighbor... Why would love require the believer in such a case to not eat the meat that was put in front of him? Well, if it was a brother with a weak conscience that was saying, hey, that meat was sacrificed to an idol, and you can tell he's asking with concern because he's just got saved, he's just been delivered from idolatry, and he's wrestling through these things. You mean there's only one true God? Yeah, I want to live for him. 
but he doesn't quite understand fully that there's no such thing as other gods. And so when he sees you sit down at an unbeliever's house and are about to eat that meat, he wonders, hey, is that okay? He's obviously confused. And for you to just disregard his questions and go ahead and eat it, he's not going to understand. And he might be encouraged to go back to idolatry. If, if the informant is, on the other hand, an unbeliever, perhaps he's saying it out of courtesy. I know you just became a Christian. I know you're a little dodgy about there being a number of gods. I just want to let you know where this meat came from. Or maybe he's trying to embarrass the believer. He's upset that he just became a Christian, and he says, hey, come to my house, and he, he gets, puts him down in the table with all these other unbelieving co-workers and friends, and then all of a sudden he springs on him, hey, this meat I just served you, it's from an idol. What are you going to do now? In either case, eating may send a confusing message to the unbeliever that maybe you don't really believe that there's only one God and one Lord. You see, the issue is not whether or not the believer is free to eat this. Paul has said it's not in the context of worship. You can eat it. The concern is, what are the other people going to think? Is it going to help them know this true God? Is it going to help them progress in their faith in Christ? Or at this moment, is it going to hurt them? Paul says, if it's going to hurt them, then just don't eat it. Don't exercise your freedom. Love for the other person's soul should lead the believer to not eat, even though he would have been free to eat otherwise. When we come to the second half of verse 29 and verse 30, Paul asks two questions that are very difficult to understand in the context of this passage. It's hard to know how do these two questions fit into Paul's argument. And I was, I've been banging my head on these two verses for a long time, looking at the commentators who have not been helpful because they make an argument, but it's far from an open and shut case. So to, tell, to be honest, I don't know how these questions fit in, but let's read them. Paul says, For why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? If I partake with gratefulness, why am I slandered concerning that for which I give thanks. Paul opens up these two questions with the word for. For. It tells us that he's using these questions to explain something. And the, the confusion comes in when we're trying to figure out what exactly he's explaining. Is he explaining what he just said at the beginning of verse 29? Is he explaining the exception he gave in verse 28? Is he explaining the freedom he had outlined in verse 27? I don't know. But at the end of the day, the differences between the, the best interpretations don't really affect the overall message of this passage. I know that's terribly unsatisfying, but that, I'm going to leave it at that, and we can talk more if you have questions. But despite not being able to figure out those two questions, the overall message of verses 25 through 30, the boundary marker that is set there for us is quite clear. We are free in Christ to enjoy what God has provided for our enjoyment 
but we must never exercise that freedom without taking into account the effect it will have on the consciences of people who are watching us. We need to ask ourselves before we act whether or not our actions are going to encourage a weak believer in their faith or encourage them to possibly go back to a life of sin. We need to ask ourselves whether or not my actions are going to confuse and further darken the conscience of an unbeliever or not. And if it's going to cause them to stumble, then it's not worth exercising my freedom for that. I need to be more concerned about their spiritual well-being than whether or not I get to enjoy this thing that I like to enjoy. Just to help us maybe wrap our arms around this concept a little better, turn with me to Romans chapter 14, where Paul addresses something similar. Romans chapter 14, starting in verse 13. In this chapter, he's dealing with Christians who have differences of opinions, differences of conviction about certain things. And he's encouraging believers not to stumble one another. Verse 13, he says, Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather judge this, not to put a stumbling block or offense before a brother. I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is defiled in itself, but... To him who considers anything to be defiled, to him it is defiled. For if because of food your brother is grieved, you are no longer walking according to love. If if your exercise of freedom wounds the conscience of another believer, you're not loving that brother or sister. He says, do not destroy with your food that you're free to eat. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what is for you a good thing be slandered. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God is not about me getting to do what I like to do, maybe even what I'm free to do. The kingdom of God is about righteousness, joy, and peace in the Holy Spirit. Verse 18, For he who in this way that is, watching out for the consciences of others, he who in this way serves Christ is pleasing to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. He's saying, if your freedom that you exercise winds up causing another believer to sin, then that freedom is sin because you have used it now to hurt another believer. It's evil if it's causing you to, to make someone stumble. Verse 21, It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Blessed is he who does not judge himself in what he approves, but he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith. And whatever is not from faith is sin. We want to help one another walk by faith. 
We need to stand as guards over one another's consciences. That brings us to our third boundary marker that we find in the last four verses of chapter 10. And that boundary marker is sacrifice for another's salvation. If my freedom is in keeping with me denying myself to further someone else's salvation, it's fine to do that. But if I go beyond that boundary marker to the point where I'm being selfish and I'm disregarding what is best for the salvation of others, I am no longer free to do that thing. Paul ends this three-chapter section with three clarifying commands. There's three commands in these four verses. And these, these verses sum up not only chapter 10, verses 23 to 30, but these last four verses sum up all of chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10. When it comes to knowing what I am a, as a believer am free to do or what I'm not free to do, there's one overarching principle that we need to remember, and that's in verse 31. Paul says, Whether then you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Do all to the glory of God. Paul mentions eating and drinking because that's what these three chapters have been all about. And it's interesting how much of our relationships with others revolves around this simple activity of eating and drinking. And our relationships can be messy. And they can quickly become confusing when we're trying to figure out how to live life in the church, how to live life with family, how to live life with friends, and how to live life with co-workers without compromising our loyalty to God. A loyalty which must trump all other loyalties. And the command that can cut through all of the confusion, what do I do in this situation? The command that can slice through the confusion and just shine a light of clarity on the situation is this, do all to the glory of God. If I cannot bring glory to God in this activity that is before me, then I am not free to do it because I must do all things to the glory of God. Paul brings in a second clarifying command that helps cut through the confusion of knowing what we are free or not free in Christ to do. Verses 32 to 33, he says, Give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many, so that they may be saved. He says, give no offense. What that means is don't cause someone to stumble. Don't trip them up so that they fall into sin. We saw that in Romans chapter 14. We also saw it a number of weeks ago in 1 Corinthians 8 and verse 9. Do you remember what he told these believers there? He said, see to it that this authority, this thing you think you are free to do, See to it that it does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. And Paul gives us three categories of people that we need to be careful not to stumble. And these three categories encompass all of humanity. They're unbelieving Jews, the unbelieving Greek or non-Jew, and the believer, part of the church of God. 
In chapter 8, we looked at how we can make a believer with a weak conscience stumble. And we kind of get that. But how can I make an unbeliever stumble? That's a little harder to understand. I mean, they're already dead in sin, consumed by sin. How can I make their situation worse? Well, we can cause them to stumble by pushing them away from the gospel. Paul's saying, don't do anything that further alienates someone from the gospel. It's the opposite of what Paul did. Do you remember what Paul described about himself back in chapter 9? He described how he had rights and freedoms as an apostle, but what did he do with those rights and freedoms? He laid them down. Why? So that he could more effectively reach the lost with the gospel of Jesus Christ. He did everything he could possibly do for the sake of wooing people to the gospel. And Paul calls on us to do the same. We are to seek not our own profit, but the profit of the many, so that they may be saved. That is why we're still here and we're not in heaven. What did Jesus command us before he ascended into glory? Go and make what? Disciples. That is the whole point. We're here. And if we are instead wasting our lives on doing what pleases ourselves instead of reaching the lost, we are totally wasting the lives that the Lord has given us in Christ to live. Our lives should revolve around helping fellow believers persevere in the faith. Our lives should revolve around reaching unbelieving Jews and Gentiles for Christ. And if our lives are instead revolving around our own personal profit, if we are instead consumed with our own freedom, our own rights, our own desires, then we are no longer of any use to our brothers and sisters in Christ to help them persevere in the faith, and we are no longer of any use to the droves of unbelievers who are slipping into hell every single day. Give no offense. He's not talking about superficial offenses. The truth will offend. He's talking about the kind of offense that darkens the conscience, moves someone away from true faith in Christ. That's what he's talking about. And then he gives a final, third clarifying command in chapter 11, verse 1. He says, Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. Paul is saying, Insofar as I imitate Christ... You imitate me. In Paul, the Corinthians had a living, breathing, walking example of Christ-likeness. Paul lived among them for 18 months. And all that he described in chapter 9 about how he'd willingly given up his rights, given up his freedom for the sake of winning the lost, where did Paul learn that? He learned it from Jesus, did he not? Christ is the ultimate example. What did Jesus do to accomplish our salvation? Did he not lay down his rights and his freedom and make himself a slave in order to save us? The last passage I'll have you turn to is Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 5. Here, Paul, 
outlines the freedom and the right that Jesus Christ had as God Almighty and that he laid aside for the sake of accomplishing redemption. Have this way of thinking in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although existing in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, by being made in the likeness of men, Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God also highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We see there that the Son of God the God of the universe, the one who owns the earth and everything in it, emptied himself by taking on flesh and becoming a man, becoming a slave. He, the one to whom everyone owes their obedience, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And on that cross, though he had lived a perfectly righteous life, he took the sins of his people upon himself. And as a result, he was cut off from his people, cut off from the land of the living. And the just wrath of God that was due our sin was poured out upon him. If that's not giving up his rights, giving up his freedom, then nothing is. And then he rose from the dead and he was exalted to the right hand of his Father in heaven. And Jesus did this to save all who would repent of their sins and place their faith in him alone to be their Lord and their Savior. And Paul commands us ultimately in chapter 11, verse 1, to imitate Christ. We are called to imitate his selflessness, to imitate his extraordinary willingness to deny himself for the good of someone else. That is the highest expression of our freedom in Jesus Christ. We were purchased by the blood of Christ off of the slave market of obsession to self and sin. We have been emancipated from slavery to selfishness, and we have been set free to glorify our Maker and to serve one another. So let's not go back to that slave market and enslave ourselves to sin and self again. Let's walk in the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. Let's spend our lives on the glory of God, the edification of our church family, and the salvation of the lost. Let's pray.